I'm going to ask you to turn, please, to the familiar words of the 14th chapter of St. John's Gospel. John chapter 14, just a short reading from verse number 1. And many of you will know these words almost off by heart. The Son of God speaking to his disciples shortly before going to the cross in the upper room. John chapter 14. And we'll just read the first six verses of this chapter. Let's hear the words of our Savior afresh. John 14 and verse number 1. The Son of God said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And we know God will bless the reading of his precious, precious word. Verse number five, the question that Thomas asked to the Savior as the Lord has been speaking about heaven, the Father's house, how can we know the way? Those words, how can we know? How can I know? How can I be sure? How can I be certain? How can I know that I'm going to heaven? Those are important questions, aren't they? Let's pray together and ask the Lord to speak to your hearts. Let's pray. Encourage you to pray tonight yourself, and let's just wait upon the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before thy throne with thanksgiving, and also, Lord, with a sense of need within our hearts. We need Thee tonight so much, Lord, and we pray that the Spirit of God will speak. We pray that the Holy Ghost will apply the Word of God to every heart. And, Lord, we pray that all things will dovetail together for Thy glory. Grant, Lord, that every single person listening, Lord, to these words might know of assurance that all is well with their souls and that one day we will all be in heaven. O God, hear and answer prayer. Grant the anointing of the Spirit of God. Hide the preacher behind the cross, but glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. There's scarcely anything more important than knowing and being absolutely sure that you'll be someday in heaven. Knowing where you're going in relation to eternity is absolutely vital. We have been concerning or considering many details concerning heaven in recent weeks. Who goes to heaven? What will heaven look like? What will be in heaven? What will not be in heaven? 
What will we be doing in heaven? And tonight our question is simply, how can I be sure of heaven? The assurance of heaven. Now, many cults and many false religions will tell us that we cannot be sure of heaven. If you're following a religion or a code of works or some religious leader or some religious guru or a a list of rules and regulations, a list of do's and don'ts, you'll never be sure that you have done enough if you're trusting in yourself or trusting in a religion. Religion cannot give you the assurance that you need. There's no denomination, this denomination included. There's no church, this church included. There's no pastor or preacher, myself included, that can give you an assurance of heaven. Assurance must come from the Lord Himself. Religion cannot give you the assurance that you need, but nevertheless, the Word of God teaches us, the Bible teaches us, that we can have what Fanny Crosby called blessed assurance. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, the apostle says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I wonder tonight, do you have what the Word of God calls here a full assurance of faith? Furthermore, the Apostle Paul knew that he was really saved and right for heaven and right for home. He said in 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy 1 and verse number 12, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What a wonderful thing it is to be able to say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a fortiest of glory divine. In John chapter 14, we have one of the most beautiful portions in Scripture regarding heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself is in the upper room with a small group of believers, the disciples. They are going to break bread together. He's going to talk to them about the cross. He's going to speak to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's going to speak to them about about His second coming as well. He's going to try to soothe their doubts and their fears and take away their troubles. And in the course of doing that, he speaks to them about heaven. Now the Lord's about to go to the cross himself. In chapter 12, he says, the hour is come. And he was speaking about the cross whenever he would be lifted up as a sacrifice for sinners. And so in so many senses, there's much that could have troubled him. Whenever he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful. Now is my soul troubled. And yet in the midst of it all, he says to the disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he spoke about heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm not going to lead you on to believe in something that isn't real. If there was no heaven... No father's house, no mansion awaiting you. I would tell you that there wasn't such a place. But he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. And he was speaking about heaven, our Father which art in heaven. The Father's house is heaven. Heaven is where the Lord Jesus Christ is. The Word of God says he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And as the disciples are listening, Thomas asks this fundamental, all-important question. How can we know the way? How can I know, Lord? How can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? How can I be sure that I'm going the right way? How can I be absolutely certain that whenever you come back again to receive your own unto yourself, that I'm going to be included in that number? How can I know that I'm going to be with you for all eternity? Thomas wants to know. Thomas wants to be sure. And so that's our subject for this evening. How can we be sure of heaven? You know, it's amazing how many Christians struggle with this subject of assurance. I meet many believers, and from time to time, some of them will say, you know, I do have my doubts. Sometimes I'm just not so sure. Sometimes I wonder, will I really be in heaven? Sometimes I wonder, am I really saved? And, and good Christians, sound Christians at times, can have these doubts arising within our hearts. And I suppose tonight, see it, Spurgeon was right when he said, I doubt the man who never doubts. Maybe tonight you've got doubts. Maybe tonight you struggle with assurance at times. And sometimes as you think about what a Christian should really be, you look at your own life and you think, I don't seem to fit the ideal and I let the Lord down so much and I maybe don't pray as much as I ought and sometimes my heart's cold and I, I don't read the Bible as much as I should and maybe I don't enjoy church as much as I ought to and sometimes the heart gets cold and whenever that happens, we can have doubts, can't we? Maybe tonight you're here and you've You've got doubts like many others. What I want tonight just to give you four foundation stones on which to build your assurance upon. Four foundation stones that will help you if you're struggling to have a sureness and a certainty about heaven. The first thing we need to be sure about is this, the work of the Savior. If you want to have an assurance that you're going to heaven, the first thing you need to be absolutely sure about is the work of the Savior. You know, as a young teenager, I struggled. I lacked assurance. I lacked maturity. I still do lack maturity in the things of God. But sometimes I presumed. Sometimes I assumed. Sometimes I wondered. Sometimes I doubted. Sometimes I wasn't sure. Sometimes I maybe didn't really care as much as I needed to. And why did those things happen? Why do thoughts arise within your hearts? And I can say that for me, maybe not for you, but certainly for me, there was a lack of understanding about the cross work of Jesus Christ. I was brought up in a, a culture, a religious culture, a, a church system where it was so often said, and I have no doubt said sincerely, ask Jesus into your heart. You want to go to heaven? 
Ask Jesus into your heart. You want to know your sins are forgiven. Ask Jesus into your heart. And so I, I suppose as a young lad, there were many times never lying in bed at night. Thoughts arose within the heart. Want to be sure? Better ask Jesus into my heart. And then maybe doubts would arise and question arises. Did you really mean it the last time whenever you prayed the sinner's prayer or asked Jesus to be your Savior? Did you really mean it? And, and whenever the doubts arose, this prayer again, I better pray that prayer again and really mean it. Ask Jesus into your heart. And I suppose that cycle went on for a number of years. And it always came back to this this question, did you really understand it? Did you really mean it? Did you really pray in earnest? Was your faith strong enough? Was your repentance sincere? And if it wasn't, then you need to go through the cycle again. And if you really mean it, and if you are really sincere, then hopefully the assurance will come. But the problem was, all the while, there was a lack of understanding regarding the cross work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is it not true today to say that even in evangelical circles, there is a decentralizing of the cross? The cross work of Jesus Christ, which is so critical and central and crucial to the, the Christian gospel, to the message of the Bible, I believe tonight that the cross somehow, somewhere along the way, has been decentralized. And it wasn't until I really understood the fullness of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross that that blessed assurance at last came. I often as I'm sure you do as well, sit in funeral services. And I listen intently to what's being said. And I have to say that even sometimes in fundamentalist gospel preaching churches, evangelical churches, there's mention made of heaven and hell. There's mention made of faith and repentance. There's an exhortation to get right with God and put your trust in Jesus Christ an exhortation to prepare for eternity and to be ready. And all of those things are, are good and right and need to be said. But I've often left funeral services in evangelical churches and there's been no mention at all of the cross. And the cross is oftentimes conspicuous by its absence. Willie Mullen, the great Baptist preacher, used to say, I will get to the cross by fair means or foul. And since really coming to an assurance of my salvation, because it's grounded in the cross work of Christ, and the Lord's called me to preach, I always endeavor to get to the cross. Because friends, if there's no cross work of Christ, if the cross isn't central, we're going to struggle with this great matter of assurance. And I make no apology for again and again and again telling men and women that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shed His blood and died upon a cross to pay the price for our sins. Your assurance and mine must be founded and grounded in the cross work of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. He said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul put great emphasis 
upon the cross. And whenever you really understand that your salvation was purchased at the cross fully and finally and forever, that's whenever assurance begins. As we think about the cross work of Christ, what about the subservience of the work of the Savior? The Son of God, the Bible says, became a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He became a servant. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And there was only one man that ever served God perfectly. There was only one man that ever lived a life that was entirely and completely and always and only pleasing to God, and that was Jesus Christ our Lord. He was absolutely subservient to God the Father. The Bible says he was made under the law, and only the Son of God fulfilled the law absolutely perfectly. And only the Son of God bore the penalty of the law. And he did it on behalf of all who put their faith and trust in him. The subservience of the work of the Savior. And then there's also the substitution of the work of the Savior. You know, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ lies at the very heart of the gospel. The cross work of our Lord is central to the Christian message. You notice how many times in the gospels and in the epistles you have the little word for whenever it comes to the work of the cross. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And whenever you have that little word for in that context, it means in place of. God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place. He died the just in place of the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And it's this whole concept and this whole idea of substitution. No other hope, no other plea. He took my place and died for me. Now, many of you tonight are interested in sports and in team sports You've often got the concept of substitution. Somebody's playing in the field. They get injured. They can't carry on. They can't play anymore. And they have to be taken off. And that's like us in the, in the, the, the life that we live on this earth. As far as pleasing God's concerned, we have been injured and broken and ruined by the fall. And we cannot fulfill the law of God. And Jesus Christ came in as our substitute. And he says, stand to one side and I will take your place. I will do the things that you cannot do. Live the life that you cannot live. And pay the price that you cannot pay. The work of the Savior on the cross was subservient. The work of the Savior on the cross was substitutionary. But praise God, the work of the Savior on the cross was successful. He laid down his life. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, 
We've got remarkable words in verses 17 and 18. Do you remember whenever the Savior said to the disciples, I lay down my life of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down of myself. The Son of God, whenever he was on that cross, was not gasping and trying to hold on to the breath of life. He was not trying to hold on to life as long as he could. He wasn't gasping for his last breath and trying to draw in air after those three hours of darkness. Whenever he became sin for us and bore the penalty of our sins upon his own body in the tree, and he cried out with a loud voice saying, It is finished. Immediately after that he said, Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. And then he bowed his head and he yielded up the ghost. He died by an act of the will. His death was supernatural. His death was volitional. Having paid the price, he yielded up his life and he died voluntarily. Having paid the price in his own body upon the cross for our sins in full. The cross work of Jesus Christ was successful. He laid down his life in the resurrection. He took it up again. And being raised up from the grave, it was evidence that the Father had accepted the cross work of our Savior. The subservience of the work of Christ, the substitution of the work of Christ, the success of the work of Christ, the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Can I tell you tonight that Jesus Christ is enough? Can I tell you tonight that Jesus Christ did enough? And can I tell you tonight that Jesus Christ has enough? He is enough. His life was perfect. He did enough. His sacrifice was complete. And He has enough. He's got enough grace and enough power to save you whenever you come and put your faith and trust in Him. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. You know, years ago, I remember conducting a gospel mission. It was about 13 years ago. And the Lord was very gracious, and souls were converted at that time, and backsliders were restored. And remember, in, in the midst of it all, there was a number of people that came and were counseled just for assurance of salvation. And I can think of one young man, and I was very surprised to see him after the meeting in the little inquiry room. And he was trembling and shaking like a leaf. And he just kept saying over and over again, I need to get right with God. I need to get right over and over again. And I, I spoke to him by name and I said, I, I took it all the time I've known you that you were a Christian already. And he says, I thought that I was, but I'm not sure. And I, I need to get saved. I need to get right. He just didn't know how to articulate the burden of his heart. And he stripped it all back. And I said to him, well, what's, your, what's the trouble? What's the problem? And his problem is this. He says, I do not have a date in my Bible whenever I get saved. And I says, where did all this start? These doubts that you're having. And he says, well, he'd started university. He talked about a young man in his class who was a Christian. And they were talking together. And this other young man said, when did you get converted? And he didn't know the date. And this 
person unwittingly says, well then you can't be converted if you don't know the date. And this was really troubling him. And as the conversation went on and we opened the scriptures together, I says, well, can I ask you presently now, what have you been trusting in to get you to heaven and to save you? And he simply said, I've been trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in the cross, the finished work, yes. Well, is, isn't that the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And if you've put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what God is looking for. It's lovely if somebody has a date. But many people can talk about a date, but they never talk about the cross. And all of a sudden, the penny dropped and the, the anxiety left him. And from that moment on, he's been, as far as I know, walking well with the Savior. You see, if you're looking to a date or to a prayer or to an emotional feeling or an emotional high or a particular night in your life's experience, and you're saying, that's where I get my assurance from, there can be trouble with that. Your assurance and mine needs to come from Calvary's cross. The Son of God died for me, and it's enough that He died for me. And my security and my assurance comes from the work of the Savior. And I trust tonight that you've grasped that, that the cross work of Christ, Calvary covers it all. And then there's another building block for assurance. Not just the work of the Savior, but also the words of Scripture. More and more in this day and generation, we must ever appeal for a faith and for a gospel that is biblical. There's so much today of superficiality. So much today of feelings and emotions and good meetings and exciting meetings and all the rest of it. And it's good to have good meetings and exciting meetings and enjoy times of praise and times of worship and, and listen to testimonies. And all of those things are wonderful and they all have their place. But down at the grassroots of it all, we must get down to the grassroots of Holy Scripture. John Calvin once said, Let us not seek any other ground of assurance than God's own testimony. Let us not seek any other ground of assurance than God's own testimony. Dear friends, tonight the Bible claims to be the Word of God. We read in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and truly furnished unto every good work. The prophet Isaiah said, If they speak not according to the prophecy of this book, it's because there's no soundness in them. Jesus Christ even pointed the scribes and the Pharisees and the doctors of the law to the Scriptures. He said in John 5.39, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think that ye have life, and they are they that testify of me. Even our Lord himself in his temptation in the wilderness whenever the devil tempted him again and again and again to doubt the Father and doubt his calling and turn his back on what he knew to be true, he said over and over again, it is written, always going back to the Scriptures, always going back to the written Word. Romans chapter 10, 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing 
and hearing by the Word of God. And it is one of the great purposes of the Bible to give us assurance of salvation. 1 John 5 and 13. Mark it in your Bible. Take note of it. These things have I written unto you that believe in the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And so there was a time whenever the people that John was writing to had put their faith and trust in the work of the Savior. And then John writes to them to encourage them in their assurance and says, These things have I written. The written word gives assurance to those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whenever we think tonight about the words of Scripture, the words of Scripture need to be appreciated. And by that I mean they need to be understood. Many there are tonight who attend churches and services like this, so they maybe don't really understand the gospel. And many people try to run before they can walk. And they try to work out eschatology and end-time theology and some of the finer points of doctrine and split hairs over Christian doctrine and Christian practice. But for so many, they haven't got the foundations right. Whenever Philip was called to go south down to Gaza to the desert because there was a man from Ethiopia who had gone to Jerusalem to try to find peace with God and he was coming back disappointed. The only thing that he came back with that was of any value to him was a copy of the prophet Isaiah. And God was so interested in this eunuch that he called Philip out of a great revival in Samaria and said, I want you to go south. And Philip went south and found himself in a desert. And in the desert, he saw a chariot in the distance. And God said, Philip, go and join yourself to that chariot. And Philip ran and he met the chariot and the chariot stopped with all its entourage with him. And he popped up into the chariot and he looked over this eunuch's shoulder and he saw that he was reading from the prophecy of Isaiah. Chapter 53 in her English Bible. And again, it was all about the cross. So here you've got a man and he's reading the Word of God. He's reading about the cross. He's reading about the work of the Savior. He's reading words of Scripture. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And that eunuch was humble enough to say, no. How can I accept some man teach me. I can remember at school, the teacher in third year in the mathematics class used to, uh, about halfway through the lesson, before we had to open our books and do the work for ourselves, would have explained it, did it up on the blackboard. Now, does everybody understand? And I think about twice, I put up my hand and says, Miss, and I'll not mention her name. She's probably gone now. I don't know where she's gone to, but she's gone. And she used to say, does everybody understand? And I, a couple of times, put my hand, I don't understand. And a couple of times that I asked that question, she rolled her eyes and she laughed. And I thought, well, I'm never going to put up my hand again and tell the teacher that I don't understand if you get ridiculed and embarrassed. Here's a man that was humble enough to say, I don't understand the gospel. I'm reading it, but I don't understand it. Can you show me from the Word of God how I can know that my sins are forgiven? And Paul, or Philip, opened the Scriptures and beginning right there in Isaiah 53, preached on to him Jesus. Talked about the cross. Talked about the sacrifice. 
And all of a sudden, light began to dawn in this man's soul. He began to appreciate. He began to understand the Scriptures. The Scriptures, the Word of God, must be appreciated. And then, furthermore, the Word of God must be accepted. It must be believed. Because there are many people tonight that understand the Gospel, but they just don't believe it. They haven't really accepted it. They, they still doubt and they still wonder about it. And it's not enough just to have a working understanding of the gospel. Years ago in Scotland, there was a, a theologian. His surname was Sandeman. And he had a whole group of followers. And they, they talked about Sandemanian faith. And what they, they meant by it was this man was such an intellect, such a theologian, and was able to dissect the finer points of theology. And he came to the conclusion that if you just understand the gospel, that's enough. As long as you understand it. And, and you can say, yes, I understand that. You don't really have to have any emotion or any feeling or any activity. It's just a, a faith that's up here, intellectualism. But the Bible says there needs to be a response to the Word of God. If we understand it, we need to accept it, and we need to lay hold upon it. Dr. Doulis a few weeks ago said to me, some church-going people are like tadpoles. And I kind of looked at him. He says, all head but very little body. I thought that was good. Have it all up here, and it's all in their head, but very little substance, very little body. There needs to be, yes, an appreciation of the Word of God, but there also needs to be this acceptance of the Word of God. Dr. Harry Ironside said, Faith rests upon the naked Word of God. The Word believed gives full assurance. I wonder tonight, have you understood the Gospel? Have you understood your need for a Savior? Have you understood that you can't save yourself? Have you understood that Jesus Christ has paid the price? You say, well, I understand that. Well, have you accepted that? Have you believed in that? Have you believed the Word of God to be true? And then the Word of God must be appropriated, acted upon, and claimed. If we understand it, and if we believe it, then as well there needs to be a, a claiming of it. A claiming of it. The hymn writer said, O mourner in Zion, how blessed art thou, for Jesus is waiting to comfort thee now. Fear not to rely on the word of thy God. Step out on the promise and get under the blood. Now there's another verse to that hymn that's not in our hymn book and it says this, The promise cannot save, though the promise is true. Tis the blood you get under that cleanses us through. It cleanseth me now, hallelujah to God. I rest on the promise. I'm under the blood. It's like having a check in your wallet. And you've got a whole lot of debt. And that check is sufficient to cover all of your debt and more. But it's of absolutely no value to you unless you go to the bank and you go to the teller and you get it lodged in your account. And so it is with the Word of God. It's good to understand it. It's good to believe it. But there comes a time whenever you have to say, I'm stepping out on it. And I'm going to cast myself completely upon the Word of God. The work of the Savior. 
the word of Scripture, and then having appropriated both, there's what we could also call a walk of sanctification. God's salvation changes people. The Bible says, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away, and all things are become new. The Bible says, if we have received Christ the Lord, we ought also to walk in Him. The Bible says we're to walk in newness of life. The Scripture says, if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. And again, some stumble with this. They go so far but they don't really seem to enjoy walking with God. And that indicates that maybe something is wrong. Sanctification is such an important thing. Every single sinner that God justifies, that is, forgives and declares righteous, he also begins this whole process, this walk, and this work of sanctification. What is sanctification? It means to be set apart. It means to die more and more unto self and sin and to live more and more under righteousness. It's like a little child being born into the world and everybody rejoices and is thankful for that and they see this beautiful little baby with all of the vital signs of life. And then that baby begins to grow and develop and get bigger and get an appetite and grow in stature and it's evidence of life and its development, its growth, and it begins to walk and take its first steps. And so it is whenever a person's born again of the Spirit of God, and they've really trusted Jesus Christ, and they've really appropriated the work of Christ, and they're really getting into the Word of God, then this walk begins to happen. And they begin to die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto Christ. It's absolutely necessary. It's so important tonight that if you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you're growing in grace and walking with God and following on to know the Lord. And, and you say, well, how, how, how does this happen in a person's life? How can, how can I walk with God in this day and in this generation? Before the Lord again went to the cross in John 17, he prayed in verse number 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God is our daily bread. The word of God is like milk. It's like water. It's like bread. It's like honey. It's like meat. And it's only as we feed upon the word of God and get the word of God into our souls that we can really grow in grace and really see growth and development and progress on the Christian life and in the Christian journey. Can I ask you tonight, are you in the Word of God? I've listened to testimonies and people have often said whenever they backslid and got away from God and lost this sense of God in their lives and lost this sense of assurance and lost their desire for God, it often came for want of reading the Scriptures. No longer having a quiet time. No longer in the Word of God. And then maybe not long before they're no longer under the Word of God. And they're starving themselves spiritually. And whenever you starve yourself spiritually, you get weak. You get lethargic. You begin to get sleepy. You begin perhaps to lose consciousness. And spiritual life is, is low. 
whenever Duncan Campbell went to the Isle of Lewis, was walking up the gangplanks under the harbour at Stornoway, one of the elders simply asked him a question from that little church in Barvis. Are you walking with God? Can I ask you tonight, are you walking with God? Because friend, if you're not really walking in fellowship with God, you can't really have assurance of salvation. Some people point to a date and all the rest of it, but presently they're not really in fellowship with God. The only external evidence that a person is saved and born again is if they are displaying all of the vital signs of life. So there's the work of the Savior. There's the words of Scripture. There's this walk that the Bible speaks about, sanctification. And then lastly, there's also the witness of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is real. The Spirit of God isn't merely a force or an influence or a, a supernatural power or authority. The Bible says that the Spirit of God is a person. And it is the work of the Spirit of God to convict of sin. It's the work of the Spirit of God to produce spiritual life. That's why we talk about being born again of the Spirit of God. It's the work of the Spirit of God to reside in us. It's the work of the Spirit of God to produce fruit in us. And it is also the work of the Spirit of God to give assurance of salvation. Romans 8 and verse number 16 says, The Spirit, or His Spirit, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Your friends, tonight we're talking about assurance of salvation, but there is such a thing as counterfeit assurance. There is such a thing as presumption. There is such a thing as well as self-deception. The Bible speaks more about self-deception than it does about any other type of of deception. And many people perhaps presume and assume that all is well with their soul whenever the reality may be that all is wrong in a spiritual sense. What does it mean when the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit? He bears witness to the work of the Savior. He bears witness to the words of Scripture he bears witness to the work of sanctification. Whenever the Son of God saves a person, he enters in. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the Spirit of God bears witness to that fact. The Spirit of God bears witness to the truth of God's Word in a person's life. And he also bears witness to a changed life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness and gentleness and temperance, and so it goes on. Wonder tonight, is the Spirit of God being produced in your life? The hymn writer said, What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have peace in my soul which so long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart my heart. You're maybe here in the meeting tonight and somewhere along the way you've lost your assurance. You've lost that joy within. The speaking voice of the Spirit of God is growing dim. 
You've no longer the love and the peace and the joy and the contentment that you once had. Maybe something in your life has grieved the Spirit of God. Maybe you've professed faith, but you've never, never really had that assurance. Or maybe tonight you cannot have that assurance presently because you're not yet a Christian. Let me just recap on those four building blocks, the work of the Savior. Have you been to the cross? Have you ever come to Christ, the Son of God, and called upon Him and trusted Him and said, Lord, You died on a cross for my sins. And Lord, I'm casting myself completely upon Your mercy and Your grace. Thank You for dying for my sins. And Lord, Your Word says that if I come to You, You'll never cast me out. And Lord, I'm claiming the promises of God. And Lord, I'm asking you to to work in my life and help me live the Christian life. Help me to walk and, and develop and grow as a Christian. And Lord, I'm praying that your spirit would, would bear witness with my spirit. Lord, give me this assurance as I've trusted in the finished work of the cross. Cast myself upon the integrity of God's word, asking for help and grace to live the Christian life. It's the most important thing in all the world that you know that you're going to heaven. Can I ask you right now, if the Spirit of God bears witness in your heart, if this was your last night on God's earth, do you know right now that it will be absent from the body and present with the Lord? How can I know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. That's the way of the cross. I am the truth. That's the words of Scripture. I am the life. That's the work of sanctification. He's the way. The way of the cross leads home. He's the truth. The incarnate Word of God. And He's the life. The life of Christ living in you. And the Spirit of God can bear witness to those wonderful realities. Pray tonight that if God has spoken to your heart, that you don't leave without this blessed assurance.